Рік тому у цей день, цього ж місця, близько сьомої ранку я звернувся до вас. Exactly a year ago, I broadcast a message that contained the two things that remain most important now. That Russia had launched a full-scale war against us, and that we are strong. We are ready for anything. We will defeat anyone, because we are Ukraine. We will never rest until the Russian murderers face the punishment they deserve. The punishment of the International Tribunal, the judgment of God, of our warriors, of all of us. The verdict is clear. Nine years ago, the neighbor turned into our aggressor. A year ago, the aggressor turned executioner, looter and terrorist. We have no doubt that they will be held accountable. We have no doubt that we will win. That was Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky marking the one-year anniversary of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. To take stock of how profoundly the war is changing our continent, we have decided to reflect upon three unique angles of it. First, the shifting tectonics of public opinion. Second, the enduring resilience of the transatlantic relationship. And third, the message the invasion sends to other authoritarian would-be aggressors like China. Enjoy the episode. So, to get things off, I think an interesting angle that I was thinking about a lot when we were trying to find angles to cover the war in Ukraine a year later is the European public opinion angle, which is one which I feel has been a little bit undercovered. And I wanted to do a bit of a deep dive, not only on public opinion in Europe, but also well, later on also kind of global opinion and how Europe differs compared to the rest of the world. But first of all, what I think is important to say is, at the moment, public support in Europe for sanctions against Russia is incredibly high. It goes from 86% in Poland and down to you know, the, the, the lower support according to uh, Fondation Jean Jaurès, which ran at April across Europe. The lower support in Europe for sanctions is in Germany, but that's still 62%. So you have a really strong support going on here. But also something which I found really interesting about the whole conversation, because let's face it, there's been this conversation about how the balance of power in Europe has pivoted to the East, and the East and center, center of Europe would be you know, much more in favor of Ukraine, much more hardline on Russia. Um, Finding, I was looking at another poll here, um, done by the uh, ECFR, and well, the ECFR using I think the Eurobarometer, and and they actually have a really interesting map of supports for Ukraine in the 24 member states. Would you be able to guess which countries are in the bottom five for supports for Ukraine in Europe? Uh, just random guess. Uh, Cyprus? Cyprus is a good one, yes. Cyprus is uh, number fourth for the least support 
um, for the for the EU support in Ukraine. Uh, Julian, if you have to take a guess, uh, why not Hungary? Hungary is fifth, but and this is really interesting for a country in Europe that supports that disapproves the most or approves the least of the EU support for Ukraine is Bulgaria with 48%. It's the only other country, so the only two other countries in Europe which don't support um, the EU's efforts in Ukraine are Greece and Slovakia. So I think it's a very nuanced picture because I think countries like, uh, you know, the Baltic countries like Poland have been leading the charge against Russia and pushing for, for tough measures. But we really need to see Central Europe as, you know, as, as, as a nuanced and complex picture because everybody knows the tensions on Russia between Hungary and Poland, but it's not just Hungary. It's Romania, it's Bulgaria, it's Greece, it's, it's, it's Hungary, it's, it's Slovakia. So I think it's a really interesting picture to draw here. But another point which I wanted to make about European support for the war in Ukraine is that it's actually gotten significantly worse. There's been, so let me look at this here. Um, essentially, at the start of a war, Take the big big guns, France, Germany, Italy. Support for the war was in... Well, not support for the war, but support for aid to Ukraine was in the low 80s, 80%. Now, given how divided you know, democracy like France is, getting anything in the low 80s is outstanding. However, in, in, in the last year or so, that support has dropped to the low 60s. It was interesting is given the, you know, the political trend in Germany has been we oppose sending weapons to Ukraine, but then progressively have been pushed into doing it given the global circumstances. What is interesting is actually public opinion has done the, the opposite trip. Mm-hmm. Essentially, public opinion was very much in support of giving weapons to uh, Ukraine, even in countries like Germany. And what we're seeing now is actually the opposite, where you still have a slight majority in a country like France and especially a country like Germany for sending weapons to um, uh, sending weapons to to Ukraine. But now we're reaching basically 50-50 territory in, um, in, in countries like Germany. So it's, it's just so interesting to see how actually public opinion and political decision making have been going in different directions. It was one of those questions at the start of the conflict of whether Europe, which had had a sort of ambivalent attitude to the initial Russian invasion of Ukraine in 2014, um, and indeed to Russian incursions in its security space, whether it was through uh, cyber hacks, whether it was through the activities of Russian agents on the streets of Salisbury or on the streets of Germany, um, and indeed into incursions into European airspace, which the Russians do on a regular basis. There was an open question as to whether anything would change with a full-scale invasion of Ukraine and whether we'd see European countries rally to the cause. Um, And I think perhaps the shock value, the fact that it's been broadcast not just on television, radio, but across social media has probably played a large impact in at least spurring that initial wave of support for action against Russia in the sanctions department and support for Ukraine. And I think something, Jorge, if you want to bounce in this, feel free to do so. Um, But something which is, I think, really interesting is 
you know, as I said, support for Ukraine is still pretty strong. We're talking about, you know, 60, 30 territory. That's pretty strong. But what is also interesting is when you look, when you ask Europeans, what are they, what are they concerned about? 93% of Europeans are concerned by the rising cost of living, such as increasing food and energy prices. So you can really see at the heart of this the potential tension that countries like Russia will try to exploit in the, the, the months to come. Because, um, you know, inflation is starting to be juggulated in some countries, but not everywhere. Uh, energy prices will remain high and government largesse on energy will not be able to go on forever, given how many countries are in very tight fiscal spaces. So, you know, and the second concern for Europeans is poverty and social exclusion. So you get a picture here of people being very worried, especially if you start looking at the kind of social, social economic profile of the people who are most likely to support the war in Ukraine. Can you take another stab? Who do you think are most likely to support the war? Sorry, to support the aid and sanctions in the war in Ukraine across Europe? The Nordics. No, no, but the the um, the social economic, not geographic, but kind of social economic profile of the people who are most likely to support oh. that kind of uh, effort. The, the wealthier. Yeah, yeah, and that's and that's potentially an issue here. The gap goes from single digits to a country like Germany, for example, where the, 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 the divide is actually much more geographic. You know, there's still a strong pocket of support for um, for Russia in the former uh, RDA. Um, but in, in a country like France, for example, the support for Ukraine is actually quite stark on social economic lines, where the, the wealthiest uh, categories are 20 points more likely to be supporting the, the war efforts. Um, um, so again, I see, I feel like there's a real tension here and it's pointing out to maybe kind of a larger need for European policymakers to make the case to the electorate as to why we are supporting Ukraine. Yeah. And I think, uh, you know, it, this, it, it's a really interesting, I, it, there was a, there was a, another survey, uh, prior to the one you've just walked us through also by the ECFR, um, co-authored by um, uh, Mark uh, Leonard um, from way back in the summer uh, yeah. that essentially uh, portrayed these two camps in European public opinion. One side was the camp of justice and the other side, the other side was the camp of peace. And I think that these yeah. were not so much separate uh, circles in the Venn diagram. They were rather two competing uh imperatives or priorities in every people's in everyone's mind i mean uh and and they're you know i think um um when you look at a country like uh hungary which uh julian was referring to uh the government is orban's government has been sort of um you know um um you know, messaging the the idea that this war is uh, is has no winner, that this is a pointless war, that it's a war that is impoverishing everyone, and that uh, yeah. uh, all European countries have an interest in suing for peace. Uh, now, I don't think you can really neatly disentangle that from Hungary's interests in Ukraine. You've got to remember that there's a Hungarian-speaking minority in Ukraine that has long been uh, discriminated against, mistreated by the Ukrainian government, uh, not least by Zelensky, who's a Ukrainian nationalist. Um, 
But even then, I think that many of the messages that Orban has been putting out as the sort of the sole voice for peace uh, actually resonate with a with a large segment of European public opinion. I think people are are seeing that you know we, well for now we've we're at least making it past the winter. But uh, but I mean if you think sort of prior yeah. to the winter, this there really was it wasn't a foregone conclusion that we were going to make it past the winter. The, the expectation was that there were there were going to be massive blackouts. And I think if yeah. you ask the average European, the cost. Uh, of this war dragging on in terms of inflation, higher prices is not something they they are willing to, um, to. It's not a hit they're willing to suffer for some far off European country to keep its territorial integrity. It's it's something they're they, they're well, having to balance yeah. against um, uh, to balance against uh, justice. Yeah, exactly. No, but exactly. But it's this dilemma. But you know, I think as as a picture I've been trying to draw so far is is portraying here is the idea that so far public opinion is still ready to make those sacrifices the question is how far and i think there's a question at some point that european policymakers need to take into account a lot more is how do we make the case for this conflict and i'm i'm insisting on that because actually you know we're talking here among kind of western educated elites but actually, this point of view that Ukraine needs to be defended because you know we're defending democracy and and this aggression should not be you know, c- cannot be accepted. This point of view actually is kind of a global exception. Um, I have here I've got another another poll here by ECFR, um, which is really interesting. It polled nine European countries: Great Britain, the United States, but also China, Russia, Russia, India. In Turkey. And what is quite clear is, you know, we Westerners, Europe, Great Britain, and United States, are a hundred percent exception because we have a plurality of votes saying Ukraine needs to regain all its territory, even if it means a longer war or more Ukraines being killed or displaced. In countries like Russia, or Russia obviously, but China, Turkey, and India. The main position is the conflict between Russia and Ukraine needs to stop as soon as possible, even if it means Ukraine giving control of areas to Russia. Um, And on top of that, if you look at the way people across the world see Russia, 51% of Indians think that India, sorry, 51% of of Indians feel that Russia is an ally. Another 29% feel that Russia is a necessary partner. In China, 35% think it's an ally, 44% thinks it's a necessary ally. In Turkey, there's long historical tensions, obviously, between Turkey and Russia. 14% see it as an ally, 55% see it as a necessary partner. Great Britain, EU, United States, in all those countries, there's a majority, a clear majority saying Russia is an adversary. And if you include the Russia's arrival, then you get you know, overwhelming majorities. So... What is quite clear here is we are actually a very much a global exception and countries like Turkey or, or China simply do not see that country in the same light. And the conclusion, the conclusion that the ECFR draws here is that we can't simply make it about democracy because actually 
people in Turkey, people in in India, people in China quite quite feel quite cynical about this argument. You no, know, they feel actually the Europeans are not doing this for democracy; they're doing this for you know much more self interested reasons. But we need to find you know just as much as we need to make a case at home. I think we've struggled because the cause seems so self obvious to us that we've struggled to make the case internationally as to why support for Ukraine is important. Yeah, it's been reflective, I think, of a wider neglect on the part of the United States and European countries in consistent multilateral engagement with countries in Africa, Asia, and indeed Latin America. And overshadowing a lot of this is, of course, the legacy of colonialism. It's not the greatest messenger in the world when a British diplomat comes to an African country to complain about one country invading another to further its nationalist aims. It doesn't quite ring true in a lot of ways. And then on a more practical level, we've seen an underinvestment as Europe has looked inward to solve its own problems. The United States has looked inwards over the last, uh, or mostly under the in the last stages of the Obama presidency, but principally during the Trump presidency, um, of not really engaging with parts of the world and expanding trade ties, the shift towards protectionism, the uh, lack of investment from the private sector has opened pathways for Russia to really expand its ties. Um, in our one of our previous episodes that we've done, um, one of our best guests, Professor Angela Sten, in her book, uh, Putin's Russia Against the West and with the Rest, she makes this point very clearly about the ways Russia has been able to forge alliances with what we might call the non-alignment bloc or the countries who might be affected by the repercussions of the war in Ukraine due to the effect on commodities markets, but they aren't affected. They don't feel the impact of authoritarian state invading democratic state to stop its yep. ability to choose its own destiny and which block it wishes to align with. So there is an element of making that argument about this being a values proposition um, and I think that rings true in terms of some of the elements of the voting public in Europe and America, uh, and indeed in parts of Asia. But the commodities argument is one that needs to be made more forcefully in other parts of the world. But then equally, when we sort of look at Asia, there's a sort of warning component to, well, today it's Russia invading Ukraine. They've made clear their desire. You know, Putin is an ideologue. He's made clear his desire to create a great Russia, which would include Ukraine and Belarus. Um, potentially other parts of Central Asian states. If you're a country in either Central Asia or in East Asia, you're wondering which other countries might be wondering, hmm, is there territory that I could seize to fulfill my nationalist ambitions? Jorge, I, I, think, I think that's a, a fantastic segue to, I think, our second section. Yes, well, I think the, the, the question kind of lurking in the background for most uh, sort of great power analysts uh, is what signal this invasion, this uh, uh, this um, one-year-old invasion of Ukraine is going to is going to send? What signal this this is going to send to uh, China? And and obviously the the case of Taiwan is you know I think I think there there are uh, at first blush there are many parallels between uh, Taiwan and Ukraine. They're both uh, fragile democracies, uh, young democracies that are. Uh, situated next to much better armed and much bigger uh, neighbors that are not de- democracies, that are authoritarian regimes uh, that have ambitions over um, 
over their territory. Um, I think the the main sort of the, the key difference is that obviously Ukraine shares a border with Russia, whereas Taiwan lies across the strait uh, uh, through the water from China. But um, but I think you also have a lot of dif- differences in terms of um, one of the things that the, the international media has highlighted is that uh, whereas uh, Putin has been um, sort of um, Putin uh, can be seen in light of this invasion as, as a bit of a hothead, as a as a erratic, um, almost over overreaching uh, leader. Uh, Xi Jinping is a much uh, calmer mind. He is um, he is weighing the pros and cons of, uh, of when to act on Taiwan. Uh, there's obviously been a, a pickup of, of activity in the South China Sea around the uh, visit uh, to Taiwan by uh, U.S. Uh, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. Um, but I think this also sort of ties back into a longer uh, point that I made on this show uh, some weeks before, uh, which is that there was this very interesting book uh, that came out uh, before the end of the year uh, by Michael Beckley and Hall Brands at the American Enterprise Institute. The book is called uh, The Danger Zone. And what they argue is that um, Taiwan is under threat of invasion by China, not because China, not necessarily because China is at the peak of its power, but actually because it is past the peak of its power and it's it's feeling unsafe. It's a power yeah. that is past its prime. So if China feels like it has to act now or never, and it feels like it has to launch for, for power, um, much in the way that, say, Germany did in, in 1914 or other waning powers have done through history. This is This is what makes China so dangerous and so unpredictable. It's not that it's growing in power it's that it's fading in power um so so yeah and i think um and i think um this is sort of the the um the, the takeaway uh you know the the alliance of the the sino-russian alliance has also withstood uh despite the uh the the, the global context you, you still have a sort of a so- solid um uh alliance uh, partnership of uh, authoritarians between Moscow and Beijing. Um, but, you know, the, the signal that this sends in, in conclusion, the signal that this sends to, uh, to uh, China is, uh, it, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a very different, uh, it's a very, and, 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 and I think the key is that um, what the West is showing with Ukraine is that it is willing to undergo massive economic costs to punish Russia for its aggression. So that is even more of a reason for China to think twice before it moves on Taiwan. Just want to make a quick point here. Um, still going back to the data from the ECFR, um, nearly 80% of Chinese believe that the conflict in Russia and Ukraine has made Russia much stronger or that Russia was strong and is still strong. So there's few people who believe that Russia was weak or has become weaker as a result of a conflict. So, you know, I'm, I'm not sure whether this reflects the opinion of the kind of high level when you put it on the Politburo and so on. But at least the kind of public perception in China seems to be that Russia is not weaker and remains in actually some people actually 40% even believe that China has become stronger. Sorry, Russia has become stronger as a result of a conflict. 
just to sort of respond to a couple of things there, I think one point that I know this was uh, a common thread in coverage in the build-up to the war in Ukraine was an argument of, well, Putin wouldn't really do this because that's insane. Um, But I think we forget how intensely ideological he is. And I think lost in some of the analysis of Xi Jinping, although it depends on whom you read, is how intensely ideological he is. He is a devout Marxist-Leninist, and like all Marxist-Leninists, he bases his thinking on historical materialism. Um, So for those unversed in the writings of Marx and Engels, the approach to history focused on the inevitability of progress through ongoing class struggle. Now, his approach to geopolitics is in a similar vein in that change occurs when contradictory forces collide. In this case, Marxist China against uh, capitalist America and the West. So conflict is not something that he is averse to. He sees it as an inevitable part of the progression of history. And Taiwan as an entity is central to the Chinese Communist Party's ideological thought. It's been a consistent strain since 1949 that Taiwan is part of China. And you know Mao constantly tried to engineer conflicts in the Taiwan Strait, um, first under the Eisenhower administration, and then later in other US presidential administrations too. So I think it it's wrong to suggest that you know Chi is a more cautious person. Mm. He's an intensely ideological person, and he's centralized his power to the extent that he's not being challenged as much. Now, granted, I am not inside the halls of Beijing, but I think there is a risk in looking at Russian failure in Ukraine and suggesting that China's thought, oh, maybe it's not a good idea to conduct an amphibious invasion of a large island that's adopting a Portuguese strategy. Um, So I I think Xi's ideology is something that we definitely need to remember. And then, you know, the Chinese decline argument is something that's very much growing in the United States and sort of understanding that as a declining power, it's, it's more risky. It's something that a lot of scholars, you know, were making. It's not really in vogue. Um, but it's something you're starting to hear more of. Um, the obvious counterpoint to it is mostly related to the extent of China's trade ties around the world, its mm. raw materials, deals um, and collections, and its overwhelming dominance of rare earth metals and supply chains. Um, I don't know if Europeans are willing to make the same sacrifice for Taiwan that they would be for Ukraine, given mm. the geographical distance, um, although they might if they realize they weren't going to get phones or laptops. But that's that's a good good last point. Um, surely, though, I think we were all surprised to the extent the extent of which Europeans and Americans ended up supporting Ukraine. I'm saying this because a lot of this now seems normal, but at the time, there's kind of a consensus that. You know, we would wave our arms in disapproval and Putin would take over Kyiv and it would be game over and there's not much we could do. Partly, of course, thanks to, uh, largely thanks to Ukraine's resistance, we've had time to react. And now the support is, I mean, the scale of it really, I think, is quite surprising. But So surely, if it's surprising to us, it would have, it would be surprising to Xi Jinping. And maybe, you know, maybe as you say... The, 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 you know he's going to he's, he's willing to reunite Taiwan with the motherland at all costs, but maybe at least he's kind of reevaluating the costs of it, given the, the response. And I agree with you. Maybe Europeans will be less likely, but there is kind of a growing. I don't have the numbers with me, but my understanding is 
if we look at polling data, there's a increasing increasing amount of people in America who say America would need to support Taiwan if things got to um, you know things got heated. Um, so I mean, surely that's going to be part of the calculus in in Beijing. Uh, like yes and no. Um, I think you would look at the sanctions response and think, okay, that's something that could happen. But militarily, they're not really parallel conflicts. For you know, Russia launching a land invasion of a neighbor where it's had a military presence for the last eight years and also used to dominate as part of a Soviet empire um, is quite different to launching an amphibious invasion, um, which is possibly the most complicated thing you can do from a military perspective. Um, even if it is approximate neighbor. I think the lessons for Chi are more about the economic response and in terms of the sanctions. Um, I think there are lessons in terms of the way Europeans and the United States responded. But I think really, if you're looking at a Taiwan war scenario, you're looking at what would the countries in Asia do. And you've seen this with the United States and Japan expanding defense ties. So uh, the South Koreans uh, as well, conducting their annual exercises, but also talking about potentially staging U.S. nuclear weapons as a deterrent to North Korea, but China's going to look at that and think, well, that would put another set of U.S. nuclear uh, materials right on our doorstep. Um, mm -hmm. And then, of course, there is uh, Australia's uh, increased spending on defense and security measures and increasingly challenging Chinese aggression uh, in the Pacific on a number of areas. So I, I, I think if we're looking at Taiwan, it's not so much the European response because I just don't think any European countries realistically have A, the capability, B, the interest to confront China. In the right, it's, it's, it's always going to be about America. Huh? It's always going to be about America. It's going to be about America and their allies in Asia and the Pacific. It'll be about, yeah, it'll be about the Indo-Pacific. Right. And, and that's another thing that's interesting from the, the polling data that came up is that Americans... You know, Ukraine is quite far away from America. And it seems that, you know, there's a con conversation going on within the American right, within Republicans, about how far shall that support go, especially in the kind of more kind of, I was going to say something rude, but, you know, the, the QAnon adjacent circles on the right, the former Tea Party, some of the kind of more aggressive Trump people and so on. Um, mm. there's you no know, desire for America to stop wasting its money in Ukraine or something like that. But overwhelmingly in America, it seems that despite Ukraine being so far away, despite that, you know, it wasn't really part of, it's not like Taiwan where you have like decades of kind of mental preparation and understanding why this country matters. Ukraine, it kind of happened quite quickly. Um, but which is actually really interesting because, again, if you look at the past three presidents, there's been quite a conscious effort to pivot away from Europe. and Or maybe actually it's more nuanced with Biden, but at least under Obama and under Trump, there's an understanding that the future of America would be played in the Pacific. And that Europe was kind of an entanglement they couldn't really afford to. Um, you know, they had to move on. They tried to reset with Russia, famously with, with Obama. Um, and now we're back in Europe again. So I think, Julian, it's a, it's a good segue for you to, to walk us through the third part of the conversation is how has the war in Ukraine shifted the strategic thinking in America? I think it's underscored what was already the opinion in a lot of defense circles in Washington 
that while China is the strategic threat, Russia is the acute threat. So Russia's mm. stabilizing actions in Europe do affect the United States in some ways because an aggressive Russia is potentially a problem that can drag the US back onto the continent. And the fact that the United States has been able to provide military aid, military aid to Ukraine, intelligence support to Ukraine, and along with their European allies, neutralize a Russian offensive with essentially a rounding error on America's defense budget is music to the mm -hmm. ears of America's security specialists because it shows that they can stall Russian advances in Europe without committing a large American force, um, which allows them militarily at least to continue to focus resources in Asia. Now, obviously there's a component to this, which is European countries spending more. So the initial, you know, things like the Zeiten vendor announcement, Germany spending a hundred billion um, upgrading its defense forces, France's increased defense spending, Britain is expected to announce a further increase in defense spending to match what we've already seen from Poland. This is all fantastic for the United States and its policymakers in terms of enabling the pivot to Asia to happen without worrying about the security threat to Europe, because previously you wouldn't have thought Europe would be able to stand up to Russia. Now you know it could, provided those investments actually come through, um, without necessarily the United States having to uh, shoulder as much of the burden as it would have previously thought it might need to. Um, so it, it's, it might have drawn the focus of the US back to Europe, but it has made it clearer that it's possible to pivot to Asia uh, and to focus US strategic attention on that region and countering China and containing China, as opposed to uh, constantly being sent back in to sort of try and contain Russia. I mean, it's interesting to see, I was mentioning it become conversation on the right is I think what is most interesting because on the left, you know, the, on the political left, it seems that support for, for Ukraine is is pretty strong. Um, on the right, it seems like the party, that conversation doesn't matter immediately. And as we covered before, you know, we don't think the Senate will end up being a huge concern for military, military aid for Ukraine, for example. But I think what's more interesting is perhaps in the kind of 2024 scenario where Trump or, or, or DeSantis gets elected, um, where would the party fall on on Ukraine? And would that position inform their future position on Taiwan? Because if you get the kind of intellectual, political architecture, the kind of anti-war movement saying America shouldn't be involved in that kind of stuff, would that also later on bleed in in the way for base, but also elected officials start thinking about what's going, what happening in Taiwan, um, and you know, again, you know, we're 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 looking into the future, and this would be a scenario in which this kind of strand gets increasing power and ends up being a influential coalition backing Trump or DeSantis, and and you know, and, and the snowball effect. But do you see the way the conversation involves? on the right, on the question of Ukraine, informing the way um, it will go later on on Taiwan? Or do you think that America's strategic interests for, in Taiwan 
is more obvious for people on the right than it is for Ukraine. So I think a couple of things to point out here. So I think the first one is that, you know, we, we, we are seeing this growing of the America first isolationist wing talking about why are we sending, yeah. spending money on Ukraine instead of, uh, well, I guess the one this week is East Palestine and Ohio. Um, and I think it's important to reiterate that the overwhelming majority of members in Congress uh, support supplying arms to Ukraine and yeah. will continue to do so. And with the way the US constitution works, as long as that is the case, Ukraine will continue to get arms. So even if you have yeah. an America first isolationist in the White House, it doesn't really matter because funding comes from Congress. So Congress can just vote through a bill allocating funds to Ukraine and the president and the executive branch by law are required to do that. That's what that's how the US constitutional structure works. So I think, you know, people who look ahead and it's a, it's a concern among some European capitals who are thinking to themselves, well, you know, what if what if Trump comes back? What if DeSantis gets elected? What if one of the other isolationists um, manages to run through the primary and, uh, and win the presidency? Well, it doesn't really matter as long as you're concentrating your efforts on shoring up support in Congress. Uh, that's ultimately where the support lies. In terms of how it affects their reaction to Taiwan, uh, I think it's a little different because the opposition to China is more baked in among uh most of the the sort of isolationist rights than it than it is for right. Russia. So when Vladimir Putin starts talking about social conservative issues um, and how yeah. America is trying to weaponize the LGBT agenda in Ukraine, yes, that is a quote. Um, that appeals to Matt Gates and other people of his yeah. ilk. When the Chinese Communist Party says something, he, as a patriotic American and Republican, cannot really agree with them. Now, they might say, well, you know, there's yeah. nothing we can really do. But to be seen to be complicit or supportive of the CCP is an entirely different proposition to being supportive of Vladimir Putin and other nationalists. So I don't think it quite translates over in terms of a broader attitude towards engagement globally. Yes, absolutely. You could see a case where people tiring of providing support overseas for a conflict where American troops aren't necessarily involved might not be as willing to support a similar level of engagement or an increased level of engagement in a conflict in the Pacific. Um, I don't mm -hmm. think it's quite the exact parallel. And I think a lot of the concern about an isolationist in the White House needs to be reconciled with the nature of America's constitutional setup. I think we can wrap up around here, but one last comment, because I was thinking about it as you were commenting about the way Putin occasionally makes those kind of very social conservative comments and presenting himself as the, the defender of Christian world against a kind of decadent West. The, the KGB guy I think talking about himself as a Christian. Of, yeah, just the, the KGB guy talking about himself as a Christian, just just to make that clear yeah. for everyone. The KGB, yeah. And exactly, that's, that's a huge irony here because if you look at the data, you know, if you look at, you know, the kind of data that, you know, social conservative are quite concerned by, uh, divorce, having children out of wedlock, um, suicide, um, alcoholism, on all those kind of deaths by despair and all the kind of, on many of those metrics, Russia is doing way, 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 way worse than the progressive hellholes that are supposed to be 
European countries and America. Um, and that's a kind of a tremendous stroke of genius to be able, you know, at not much cost, to be honest, by, you know, I think it's kind of, it's kind of, it's the aesthetics of it. You know, he's a strong man, look at him, you know, he's, he's a traditional patriarch and it's been incredibly successful. Um, sure, there's like money, there's, you know, we talked about espionage and, and, and Russia's intelligence network, but I, I think there's also very stupidly some kind of very basic aesthetics going on, which have lured in for many years, less so nowadays, but for many years, a lot of right-wing parties in Europe. And what's actually really interesting is at the same time, Putin, well, not Putin directly, but he's also making the kind of anti-imperialist case to the West. You know, at some time he's complaining that the West isn't strong and, you know, and proud of itself. And at the same time, he was going to make some kind of quasi-woke argument against uh, against Europe at the same time to an African audience. So I just find it really interesting that it's quite easy to 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 frame yourself in, in in that kind of way for not much cost, and you know, and just get massive dividends out of it. He knows how to play people. But yeah, it's a very effective Sorry? tactic. He's done it for years. He was trained to do it, and he does it on the world stage. And yet, for some reason, Absolutely. officials keep falling for it. But hopefully, never more. Never more. Never more. It was the episode for the one year of a sad one year anniversary of the start of a war in ukraine we will keep covering the events in ukraine and many many other things we are very excited about the pipeline of episodes to come so if you want to support the show and if you want to listen to those episodes in their entire format you can support us on our patreon for as little as five euros a month so please do consider supporting us it really makes it a lot easier for us to start building partnerships. As you know, we've started a partnership with a wonderful um, a newsletter, WhatsApp EU, on all EU affairs. We are planning to do some more ambitious projects as well. We also need to pay the bills for our recording equipment, for our distribution services. So there's a lot of things to make sure the show keeps on running. And so if you want to get more content and if you want to help us, you can join us below in our Patreon and we would love to have your help. If you can't afford to help us on Patreon, uh, don't worry. You can also do plenty of small things to help the show grow, such as sharing it to a friend, reviewing on Apple Podcasts. You now have the option on Spotify to give it a, a grade. Um, you can use whatever platform you are to help the show continue to grow. And we would love to get your all your reviews so we know what we are doing well and what we can keep improving on. Thanks a lot, Jorge. Thanks a lot, uh, Julian, for this fantastic conversation on uh, Ukraine, Europe, America, and China. And uh, see you all next week.